0: Listeners, It's All Relative is here to resume the story of the Yudans. Resume should imply that this is not the first episode, so don't start here. Download last week's episode and listen to that first. Reminder, this podcast is a true crime podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Use some common sense, people. Here's Chris Webby to set the mood, and I'll see you on the other side. Started at the bottom at hunger but got nothing Told them I would get to the finish, I'm not bluffing It wasn't a day since then I stopped hustling The pot's bubbling, my stock's doubling Shoes hit the pavement and everything in views for the taking Hit with a boom, the room shaking Moves that I'm making and records set soon that I'm breaking Show 'em the truth, I'm through waiting Rocking, disregard traffic signs, I'm not stopping Only way to pass the time that I've gotten they 'all the lap behind while I'm jogging no other option they y'all watching dead're alive I'm gonna get to the prize my competition better go harder get a disguise when all my methods applied and they met the demise maybe you gonna feel the temperature rise so keep running I'm living on the run make my living on the run No forgiveness for my sins it makes no difference on the run'm on the run. Last week's episode was a bit of a cliffhanger. But if any of you had suspected Gerald and Alice Uden played a bigger role in the disappearance of Virginia, Richard, and Regan, you have been on tender hooks waiting for part two. Soon after discovering it was Alice's daughter in Illinois who sent the messages posing as Virginia, Alice and Gerald walked into the Riverton, Wyoming Sheriff's Office to confess their sins. Sort of. They admitted to the letter fraud, but denied any involvement in the disappearances. Alice also denied being the woman called Joyce Johnson, who said she had called on Virginia's behalf. Alice claimed, while crying, I might add, that they had attempted the ruse because they believed that Claire had been trying to frame them for a crime. What crime? They didn't say. Gerald, trying to help proclaim their innocence, repeated his story about Virginia and the boys never showing up the day they were supposed to meet, and pointing a finger at Claire, last person to see the trio alive. This time, Matthews' brain kicked in, and he took note of Gerald's wording. No one had yet brought up the possibility that Virginia, Richard, and Regan were not alive, so Gerald's words were a bit sus to him. Not that that spurred Matthews into any action. And here, I would like to note that using the past tense when talking about the missing, or even using language that suggests that the missing person is dead, doesn't really mean anything. I myself often use the past tense when talking about something that has, well, passed, even if all the people involved are currently alive and kicking. Additionally, when someone goes missing, the longer they're gone, the more likely it is that they're dead. Verse 48, look it up, it's a thing. At this point, Virginia and the boys had been gone for weeks. A practical person, and in this case, Alice, and by default, Gerald, could very easily just assume they're dead. A few days later, a couple found the station wagon. They reported it, but the car had no license plates and nothing else to identify the owners. The dispatcher said thank you, and nothing further happened. Look, I know communication between different agencies was especially a problem in the 1980s, but Jesus Christ, is rural crime so high that you can't check the local blotters? Oh wait, Matthews canceled the alert fuck that. A week later, the car is rediscovered by a tribal cop who gives it a look and then also does nothing. At the three-week mark, a farmer and his son happened upon the car and went straight to the sheriff to report it. This time, he sends a deputy out to take a look and, surprise, surprise, the registration papers in the glove compartment state that the car belonged to one Claire Martin, something the couple and the tribal cop had missed. With the initial promise of the sheriff actually taking notice of the evidence, a.k.a. the car, that promise was dashed when the tow company was told by the sheriff department to just tow it to the owner. No need for forensics to take a look. And as I bang my head against the stucco, Francel has the balls to say, quote, to be fair, nobody yet suspected foul play, no matter how much they should have, end quote. Nope, these fuckers don't get a pass. Do Your job. It takes Claire a few days to work up the nerve, but she opens the car and gives it a rifle. She finds not much. Some popsicle sticks the boys probably left there. She finds the empty ammo box under the seat, and now she's mad. She knows they didn't do a very good examination of the car. Then she sees the blood. It's not a ton, and it's browned and dried. And she's not even completely sure it is blood. From the description, it sounds like some spatter and mostly pooling. Yet again, she calls the sheriff. Two deputies come out and have her show them the quote-unquote blood. Claire felt like she was being humored. The detectives look but say nothing until she shows them the splatter. Don't touch anything, is shouted at this point. But it's too late. Wanting to see under the cargo mat, Claire reached in and pulled it up. A dried, smeary circle of blood appeared. And again... Claire wanted to know, so she looked in the crack that's opened when you lay on down the back seats. The cops knew it looked like blood, bone, and brain. Now, now they treat it like a crime scene. The lab techs find a lot, enough to convict someone of something if they ever had a suspect. Insert pregnant pause here. Captain Matthews organizes a search of the parkland, a little bit late, where Claire's car was found. It was a mixture of deputies and volunteers, some of whom seem to be more interested in jawing with their fellow searchers than the serious work of looking for a missing mother and her children. They find nothing. Mid-November, Matthews calls in the Eudens separately to be interviewed. Now Alice was the queen of diversionary tactics, rambling off on tangents at every turn. Matthews asked her several times if she'd take a polygraph, and she declined every time on principle. Just what principle, she does not share. Over four hours, Alice maintained that she hadn't done anything. When it was over, Matthews was convinced that Alice was guilty of something. He just couldn't crack her. He then tried his hand with Gerald. Gerald was not as good at deflection as his wife. He does start the interview with Prattle about his job. When Matthews steers a convo to Virginia and the boys, Gerald shuts up. Matthews lays out his theory of how Gerald killed them and hid their bodies. This rattled Gerald to the point of not being able to speak for several minutes. When he finally did speak, he said, quote, You don't really have a case, he told Matthews, because you don't have a body or a murder weapon. Even if I did it, and I didn't, you couldn't arrest me because you got no body, End quote. Gerald's reasoning was not completely accurate. No body cases can be tried, and even convicted. But it's more difficult to do so. And in this case, the preponderance of evidence only suggests that Virginia Richard and Regan were dead. But there was no evidence to suggest beyond a reasonable doubt that any particular person was involved, let alone the Udens. As it stood, winning a conviction in this case would be more than difficult. Matthews asks Gerald to take a polygraph and Gerald also declines on principle. Gerald also is disinclined to enlighten us as to just what principle. His interview only lasts an hour and a half. At which time, Matthews is also convinced that Gerald is guilty and covering it up. For two years, Matthews tries for more concrete evidence to link the Eudens to the missing family. Gerald and Alice hire an attorney, so there's very little coming from them, even in the useless information babbling kind of way. There are, however, some curious clues that continue to confirm that Matthews is correct. B.T. Dubs, I don't know why that sentence came out so alliterative. I was going to change it, but I decided, what the hell, leave it in. One of those clues is that Alice's youngest, then seven years old, begins having strange things to tell the staff at her school. One day, she calmly announces that she might not be in school next year because her parents might be in prison. Granted, if the Udens were worried about Matthews pinning the disappearance slash murders on them, they may be discussing it quite a bit at home. Children pick up on a lot more than most adults think they do. Quote, One day, in the nurse's office, she, that is their youngest, Erica, drew a disturbing image of a person standing on a box, with her head in a noose and cocked at a dreadful angle. A cartoon bubble off to the side said, help me, help me. When asked about it, the seven-year-old said only that it happened in the barn. The startled nurse gave the artwork to a social worker, but Alice shrugged it off. Another time, she told the nurse that she had a nightmare about two dead boys who were killed and the skin stripped from their bodies. Then they were wrapped in a blanket and buried in the desert. Enraged, Alice stormed into the school and told the principal nobody was to speak to her daughter anymore. Nobody. Period. End quote. Now look, it's easy to look at this and think, that poor girl is living with murderers. But please keep in mind, children do not process information the same way adults do. I'm generalizing, so use some salt on the following. But what this says to me is that the little girl is worried about losing her family. At seven, she's lost her brothers, and now her parents may be taken from her and put in prison. It sounds like she's terrified. When humans are that young, often their comprehension of what is actually happening gets transformed into something the child does understand. The drawing of the hanged woman could be that she had overheard her parents talking in the barn about what would happen to them if they got the death penalty. It definitely sounds like they weren't shy of speaking about so-called adult things in front of her. The nightmare was just that, maybe, a nightmare, dreamt by a little girl trying to understand the death of her brothers. It isn't the seven-year-old who is leaving the biggest clues. It is Gerald. Gerald brings to the sheriff some hate mail he received. Francelle doesn't print the letter or even suggest its contents. However, when handling the letter to deputies, Gerald blurts out, quote, you don't have anything until you find a body and you're not going to find one. End quote. Gerald also requests Virginia's medical file, just in case they find a decomposed body and need to identify her. Because that's not weird. The jury was out on whether Gerald was a taunting mastermind or a blithering idiot. However, now, with 2020 hindsight, I would say he just might be taunting them. October of 1982, a grand jury is convened to see if there was enough evidence to indict the udens The evidence was still circumstantial but the prosecution was hoping that, if nothing else, it would shake the Huygens' resolve and cause them to confess or take a misstep. Alice's adoptive parents reluctantly appeared and neither refused to answer questions or claimed that they didn't know the answers. Gerald and Alice both pled the fifth, Gerald in particular pleading 49 times. That must have been beyond irritating for both sides. The couple were also protected against testifying against each other under spousal privilege. No doubt, equally irritating. And Alice's youngest, Erica, was removed from the state of Wyoming so she couldn't testify. Honestly, probably the best parenting move they could have made for the girl, intended or no. The proceedings ended in a whimper, the prosecution dismissing the jury without asking for an indictment decision. And then the Eudens moved house. I would have loved to have bit a fly on the wall for that discussion. They had property recently purchased in Oregon. But they moved to Missouri. And life went on. Gerald and Alice changed more than just their state of residence. The couple decided they were done with farming. Gerald decided to become a trucker hauling big rigs across country. Alice up and quits her nursing career and decides to join him on the road. My mom was an awesome mom. Remember that from the last episode? That's what Erica says about her mother. I fully admit that no one is perfect, and most people are more than just one thing. In Alice's case, she was a mother, a nurse, a wife, a daughter, a farmer, etc. So yes, Alice could have been a great mom in most circumstances, but something happened when the Udens moved to Missouri. You could blame it on absentee parents, but even when they were at home, Erica did not have the best guidance. At 15, CPS pulled her from the Euden home. The Udens response to this was to take all of her things to the charity shops and tell the state to keep her when CPS tried to make a plan for reunification. Back in Wyoming, Matthews has been keeping an eye on the Udens as best as he could. When word got back to him that Erica was now in the care of the state, he asked for officers to interview Erica about the disappearances of Virginia, Re- Richard, and Regan. Remember, at the time of the grand jury, Erica was sent away, effectively hiding her f- so she couldn't testify. But now, circa seven years later, when the Udens told the state to keep Erica, they turned over the decision-making power for her from themselves to the state. They had not only catalyzed their daughter to talk, they took away their own ability to stop her from doing so. The Eudens had been fairly careful with what they had said around Erica, so she didn't know much about the case. The officers provide her with the police report to help. She had always played with her brothers, which is Regan, when they came over. However, the day Gerald was to meet with Virginia, that day he says she never showed up, Erica was sent to the neighbors and told that her mother did not want her around them. Quote, When she got to the part, in the report, about the bogus letters to Claire, she blurted out that she recalled her mom typing a letter and discussing with Gerald how to sign Virginia's name. Random memories then poured out. Erica remembered Gerald removing pictures of the boys from a scrapbook after the disappearance and putting them in a drawer. She remembered being hidden from the grand jury. She remembered finding some old Wyoming license plates in the spare tire compartment of her mother's red pinto and wanting to keep them because they had a bucking horse on them. Alice snatched them away and they vanished. And she remembered that the day after the disappearance, she went with her parents to nearby Ocean Lake where Gerald went off by himself in his boat for a long time. In 1989, Alice sent an angry letter to a 16-year-old Erica at the orphanage, accusing her of colluding with the cops' mind games by simply talking to them. End quote. In 1993, an ex-Ohio, now Wyoming, cop named Jack Coppa had a pseudo friendship come mentorship with Alice's son, Ted. Remember, Alice had five children, and now adult Ted had stayed in Wyoming. In the middle of an acrimonious divorce, Ted drops by Jack's house one evening for some moral support. He had remembered, or more accurately, he had finally made several disjointed flashes coalesce into something cohesive. Quote, Ted had lived with his mom and stepfather, Don Prunty, at a historic spread near Cheyenne, the Redmont Ranch, where they were caretakers. Then, up at the roadside rest stop, where they picked up trash for the state. Don died. Bad kidneys or liver failure or something. And after that, Alice hauled her kids to several brief jobs she worked. Barmaid, bus driver, roadside rest stop janitor, maybe some others. We moved around a lot, he said. When Ted was in junior high, it was his job to drive his mom to her waitressing job at a little bar in Buford, Wyoming, maybe 25 miles west of Laramie. So we became drinking buddies and one night in a drunken haze, yeah, maybe while driving and drinking a beer when I was in junior high. She told him how she shot her abusive, drug-addled asshole boyfriend. I think his name was Ron? In the head, while he slept. She'd had enough of his cruelty. Some guy she met after Don Prunty died. Early 70s, maybe? Ted met him once, but couldn't describe him. He thought maybe they lived in Cheyenne. Probably a mobile home, but I don't know where. Ted had been farmed out to relatives back east by then. Alice told Ted she stuck Ron's body in her car, then dumped it in a hole someplace, maybe at the Redmont Ranch, maybe wrapped up in bedsheets, I don't know, maybe crammed in a barrel. Maybe she had help. He thought maybe Alice had already told his sisters, Erica and Thea, but she commanded him never to tell anybody else, end quote. This story spurs Coppa to fly to see Thea, the woman in Illinois who had mailed the fake Virginia letters for her mom, Thea said yes her mother had told her a similar story while she was making her prom dress Thea was a bit more help to the investigation because she was able to give a potential last name for Ron it was Holtz In charge of the case after Matthew's retired deputy Dave King does a search to see if he could find this Ron Holtz and determine what the real story was King found him not a boyfriend but a husband Ron Lee Holtz married Alice Louise Prunty on September 17th 1974 just outside of Denver, Colorado. Holtz was a Vietnam vet, a drafty as so many were back then. He had had a serious case of PTSD and had tried to kill himself quite a few times. He had married his first wife just before being shipped out. He 18, her 15, with a baby on the way. It was volatile and catastrophic. They were divorced within 18 months. Ron also had a police record, mostly arrests, with the judge giving him a choice between jail and the psych ward. Ron always chose the ward. July 1974, Ron is transferred to a Wyoming hospital where Alice happened to have just gotten a job. September 4th, 24-year-old Ron checked out of the hospital and 35-year-old Alice quit her job. Two weeks later, they were married. By Christmas, no one had heard from Ron Holtz and they never would. King went to visit Holtz's family. Quote, What he heard from Ronnie's loved ones, although none seemed to love him much, painted him as a functionally insane and ferocious bully. Maybe Alice shot him to protect herself. Maybe. End quote. Alice came to Wyoming with her husband to work as caretakers of the 4,000-acre Redmond Ranch. Made famous by Mary O'Hara in the book My Friend Flicka, in the already famous ranch was an abandoned mine shaft, 300 feet deep, according to O'Hara. Whether that depth was accurate or not, what was true in the book was the fact that it had been used as an animal crypt and trash midden since it was abandoned. Todd and Thea both said that their mother had rolled the barrel-enclosed body into the mine. Matthews was back as sheriff, and he extended his go-ahead to King to pursue the Eudens, dig out the mine, find the bodies, He even asked for help from the Division of Criminal Investigation, the DCI. However, life had gotten in the way for all the investigators. Koppak passed away. The DCI hit a wall. Dave King won the sheriff's job over Matthews, but Koppak passing away and his inability to solve not just the Juden case, but also whatever happened to Amy Bechtel, another Wyoming missing person's case, look it up, put him in a depressive state he couldn't get himself out of, not with drink, nor with drugs. He lost his job as sheriff. So it wasn't until some 20 years had gone by that a bored DCI agent named Lonnie Tabis happened upon the Uden case while looking for something that piqued his interest. That new life was breathed into the case. Tabis put in the new sheriff of Riverton, Wyoming, Roger Milward, to request permission to actively investigate the case and to gain access to the case file in any evidence that pertained. He also went to see Virginia's mother, Claire Martin. At 80 years old, Claire was still a mental firecracker, even if physical things were harder for her to do. She and Tabiste formed a connection of sorts. She wanted to know where her daughter and grandsons were, and he wanted to find them for her. A few years went by, and the political landscape went with it. The Brass was no longer happy with his spending so much time on a case that seemed would never be solved. But Tabist was undaunted. He even gained a partner, a DCI agent named Tong Waxmouth. Two of them sifted through the evidence and reinterviewed as many people as they could. Quote again from Francais' Gerald and Alice. Then they talked to Alice's first husband, Gerald Scott, a retired state cop who kicked her out after 13 years of marriage when she lost interest in being his wife or a mother to their four kids. He recently received some legal papers from Alice asking him to grant an annulment of their marriage, which she claimed was sanctioned by the Catholic Church. In fact, they were married by a justice of the peace when Alice was only 16. For reasons he didn't understand, she signed the request with her maiden name, Alice Barbier. He was simply flummoxed why a 60-something woman he hadn't seen in 20 years and who'd married four men would suddenly want to annul a marriage that no church had anything to do with. He didn't sign the papers." Not only is her desire to annul the marriage strange at this stage of the game, But we also know that Alice didn't leave him, he kicked her ass to the curb. The request may have been something to do with Alice's sudden need to get religious, sort of. In 2005, shortly after a visit from the DCI, Alice becomes a Carmelite nun. A lay Carmelite nun, that is. Essentially, this status makes her a bit more than a congregant, but definitely less than a nun. And according to Gerald and her children, she wasn't even very good at that. For the DCI visit, Beast and Waksmouth traveled to Missouri and just went up and knocked on the Uden's door. Quote, Alice certainly wasn't expecting DCI special agents Beast and Waksmouth and two Missouri Highway Patrol sergeants on her doorstep on a frosty January Tuesday in 2005. Maybe that's why this pale, wizened grandmother with thinning hair answered the door wearing only a bra and panties. Or maybe she had other ideas. Either way, she casually invited the two veteran detectives who'd previously thought they'd seen everything into her living room before she slipped into a, the bedroom to drape herself loosely in a ratty housecoat. Anyone else's jaw drop when they heard about Alice's welcome? Who does that? So the agents tell her they have questions about Virginia's disappearance and tell her they can stay at her home or they can all go down to the Christian Missouri Sheriff's Office. Alice chose to drive in her own car. And yes, she put clothes on. The Wyoming agents decide that Gerald is the weaker of the two and decide to coddle Alice more than originally planned so that she wouldn't get his hackles up. Quote, Soft-spoken Alice, smiling like a sweet little lunch lady, told them she had nothing to hide. At two o'clock, she started her long, exceptionally detailed biography at the beginning, from her unwanted birth to an unwed teenager in 1939, to her life riding shotgun with her truck-driving husband, Gerald. End quote. The woman keeps going. She talks about the birth of her kids in detail. She relates her marriages, completely skipping over Ronald Holtz, land that she's purchased, including the price. Then she claims she was molested by her adoptive father, and that led her to seek out her bio family. Quote, when she flew from Missouri to Wyoming to meet her aging uncles, aunts, and cousins, they gave her a letter her mother had written to the daughter she gave up, she said. But she didn't have it anymore. End quote she doesn't have it anymore? I know Alice isn't a sentimental woman, but was it that bad of a letter? You could rationalize it with Alice's adage that the ex-family shouldn't be in one's life. But then why seek out her bio-family to begin with? Oddity, thy name is Alice. When she finally got around to Virginia, Richard and Regan, Alice said she never met Virginia, didn't even know what she looked like until her photo, due to her being missing and all, made the paper. This, I almost believe. Don't forget her ostrich impression in the car when picking up the boys. She said, quote, She had welcomed Virginia's sons, Richard and Regan, into her home two or three times. Good boys they were. They always stayed in the house, never caused any problems, and never required discipline, she said, end quote. I don't know if she's really talked her memory into believing this or if she's flat out lying. First, Gerald was an avid outdoorsman, and I can't believe the boys going outside would be a bad thing. Whether they did or didn't, in or out, what the hell does it matter? Why bring it up? Never caused any problems, she said. Not sure how to take that. Everyone who knew the boys said they were rambunctious. I can't imagine Alice seeing rambunctious boys as anything but trouble. And that goes for the discipline, too. And where do you put the overnight locked in a trailer and all of this? Remember, the boys told their grandmother that's what happened to them. That sounds like some sort of discipline to me. It also qualifies as not being in the house. And the next part's kind of a treat. Quote, Yes, she and Gerald had exchanged cordial letters with Virginia about custody, but none were threatening or nasty in any way, Alice said. And they never discussed child support money, she added. In fact, Virginia had never asked for more, and Gerald was happy paying it. End quote. We have the letters that prove Alice's whole tomfoolery as a lie. Totally impeachable. Alice also gave the same statement about her and Gerald's involvement in the disappearance. Alice didn't even know there was supposed to be a meeting until Gerald came home and said Virginia never showed. Oh, and Gerald's parked outside of Claire's with a homemade weapon watching her place was just him trying to be protective. The phony letters she'd roped her daughter Thea into sending, well, they were a test to see how Claire reacted because Alice was worried the whole thing was a sham to get Alice and Gerald in trouble. Before Alice leaves the department to head home, she voluntarily gives her fingerprints, her blood, and a handwriting sample to the DCI agents. The next morning, Gerald heads for the sheriff's department to take his turn with the agents. Almost immediately, he told him that he had undergone training in the Navy to resist torture and that there wasn't much they could do to him to make him talk. Not weird at all. Quote, St. Peter will decide, Gerald continued. I will confess what I've done to St. Peter. If you guys charge me with something I can't get out of, I'll go peacefully. It'll be up to a judge and jury. Are you saying you will never confess here on earth to anyone before you die what you've done? Walksmith asked. Gerald was ambiguous. Again. This is all I have to hang on to, he said. End quote. And on yet another cliffhanger, we are at an end for today. Next week should finish things up for this case. If you have a comment, question, or suggestion, you can contact me at Despecta, or a variant, on most of the things. Trolls will be evicted. This podcast is all me, so don't go after anyone else for the content. And, well, just don't go after anyone, including me, because no one likes you when you're rude. Here's Don Henley to see you on your way, and I will talk to you next time on It's All Relative.